Incredible. Praise God. Amen. It is well with our souls because of the work of Christ. I think we could be done right now. Sermon preached. Excellent work, body. Uh, I want to start briefly and just want to call attention and thank Nick Tanaka for stepping in last week. We have uh, put Nick to the test in being ready in season and out of season, uh, and, and he has done a fantastic job. So thank you, uh, Nick. Yeah, praise God. Uh, with everything that had happened over the past two weeks here, uh, he, he was able to step in to allow us to, to cover, care for the family, and work on different things. And so uh, thank you again, Nick. As, as you uh, are collectively engaged in, in helping train up another uh, preacher of the word, I want to commend you. I also want to encourage you that uh, as he preaches the word, and more frequently that's good for him, but it's also good for us as we remember uh, you're not here to hear the words of a man, Pastor Randy, right? We don't gather for Pastor Randy's words. We gather for the word of God, don't we? Amen. And we need to hear that from whoever it comes, however it comes, whether it be from uh, myself, Nick, or a donkey, uh, or is it really any different than myself, right? So uh, in any case, uh, let's get into it. We've been working into the gospel according to Matthew. We have been there for uh, a while or just getting started. Uh, we're in the third chapter, so if you're just joining us, it's still a good time. We're still towards the beginning of his gospel. Already we've seen a lot of things that are, are kind of already reorienting and, and reframing how we think of things like the gospel and the kingdom and, and how does it look in Matthew's presentation of it versus the way we typically tend to conceptualize the gospel as in almost exclusively Paulinistic terms in the terms of the doctrine of justification by faith alone through Christ alone, right? When you think of the gospel, we think of it in those terms, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's just not the full extent as maybe Matthew would put it. If you asked Matthew, what is the gospel from Isaiah, they would say the presence of the kingdom of God and the Messiah. They would add that layer to it. And we think, well, huh, how does that work? And now I want you to think of all the times you hear Paul say, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk as worthy citizens of the kingdom. And now you see another element or facet of that gospel proclamation, the forgiveness of our sins absolutely by faith alone in Christ alone. And what does it do? It transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Praise God. Hallelujah and changes our very lives. And so we're going to see this more and more as we work into the gospel according to Matthew. So far, we have seen Matthew presents Jesus as the rightful son of David, the true inheritor of the throne. We have seen him show Jesus as the Messiah or the Lord's anointed, the fulfillment of the Old Testament types, and the one who would save his people from their sins, all in chapter 1. More specifically, chapter 2 ended with Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus fleeing, seeking refuge in Egypt from the evil King Herod, trying to destroy the baby boys two years old and under. They sought refuge in Egypt so that it might be fulfilled, Hosea, out of Egypt, I called my son. And then they go, being warned in a dream, and they go and they live in the district of Galilee. And there they would remained, so that it would be fulfilled, with the, as spoken by the prophets, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And that's where we picked up, and that, or where we left off, and that is where we pick up today. And that passage in verse 23, he went and lived in a city, chapter 2, called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. That's a very, very important setup for chapter 3, more than perhaps we realize. So let's pray, ask the Lord's Spirit to help us. Father in heaven, we just want to give you praise because you have regarded our helpless estate. And because of the work of Christ, we bear our sins no more. And Father, 
I pray that this peace that you promise, this unique peace of the soul that can weather all circumstances, I pray that you would grant it in full measure this morning. That as we look to Jesus and embrace him by faith, that we would experience the fullness of the Spirit of God in our lives. And would that convict us of sin, unrighteousness, and as Noah said, broken cisterns. May we forsake all and repent, for your kingdom is at hand. And Father, we want to lift up uh, our sister churches, wherever they may be found, particularly Songtan Central Baptist Church, Pastor Steve Hauser and his wife, Sarah. We lift up their ministry in Korea. We pray that you would continue to do mighty works on the Korean Peninsula. We pray the gospel would make deep inroads into North Korea and that one day, Father, perhaps even spurred by the truths of the gospel, that you would work peace in that peninsula. Lord, work through his ministry, strengthen his family, his wife, and his children for the tasks that lay before them. And we pray the same for everywhere. The gospel is preached faithfully, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, here's your big idea this morning. This, this passage is the, has the baptism of Jesus, so here's your big idea. The baptism of Jesus affirms his messianic reign and announces his messianic rule. Sorry, that's backwards. The baptism of Jesus affirms his messianic role and announces his messianic reign. It affirms his messianic role and announces his messianic reign. Therefore, all should repent. Therefore, all should repent. All right, let's get into it. Number one, verses one through three, we see John's prophetic word. John's prophetic word. The main character of this section is John the Baptist, without a doubt. He is the main character. Now, I know you're going to say, wait, no, it's all about Jesus. It's the baptism of Jesus. Yes, it is the baptism of Jesus. Yes, obviously, the gospel is all about Jesus, but this particular section highlights the ministry of John the Baptist as a means of pointing to the ministry of Jesus and highlighting the greatness of Jesus. In the same way, the Super Bowl halftime show, it's not about the halftime show, is it? But it gets major airtime and a lot of focus as a means of showing the unique nature of the game being played. In like manner, John the Baptist takes a, a brief spotlight to show the uniqueness, the greatness of the work of Christ. And so we take a moment to look at John the Baptist, the greatest that Jesus would say of the Old Testament prophets and his pronouncements about Jesus, and we're going to see how unique, how incredible, how wonderful is this person, Jesus. Now, when I preach is uh, an exposition of Matthew, I, I also want to teach you how to read your Bible. Right? So as I'm preaching, hopefully you're kind of learning, oh, this is, this is how you work with a text. All right? Little by little, you'll learn this. And, and so that's what I'm trying to show you now. Sometimes we come to the Gospels, and what we do is we find an account like the baptism of Jesus, and we see all four Gospel writers include the baptism of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They all four mention this event in Jesus' life. That's a clue to how important it is, right? If you are a police officer investigating a crime and you come and you talk to somebody and all the witnesses can include this detail, that's an important detail. And so here we have Matthew, all of them, and sometimes what we do is, is we look, okay, I'm going to read what Matthew says about baptism, Mark, what Luke says, and John says, and then we kind of put it all together and make this composite, full-orbed portrait of what happened at the baptism of Jesus. That isn't wrong. In, in fact, that may be entirely appropriate at different times, but this is an exposition of the gospel of Matthew, you see? We want to hear what Matthew has to say about this event. And what is Matthew telling his audience through this? And I would propose to you one of the ways to do that is not by saying, what do the other Gospels say, and let me put it together, but looking at, rather, what does Matthew not say? What details does Matthew live out of his account? You see the difference in those questions. 
because one leads me to the other gospel writers to start reading their stuff. The other leads me to Matthew to say, Matthew, why didn't you tell us that like what John the apostle told us, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why didn't Matthew leave that out? That seems kind of important. And it is. Indeed, it's essential to what John's trying to tell us about John the Baptist. Or, or Matthew, why did you leave out some of these details that Luke includes? You see? So we want to look at Matthew. We want to see the portrait that the Spirit of God has impressed upon Matthew to show us of Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do. So if you're wondering, why don't I go here or there? That's why. Because we want to see what, what Matthew has to tell us about John the Baptist and then ultimately about Jesus. So Matthew chapter 3 verse 1. It starts, I hope you have your Bibles open or turn them on. And let's get into it. Oh, and here it is on the screen for you as well. Chapter 1, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, he says, okay, so we have a time warp. Time just warped, right? Chapter 2, Jesus was a, a baby or a toddler, right? He, he was a toddler. He was a baby. And now it's Jesus is an adult. So there's a time warp of decade, couple decades, two, three decades. Jesus is about 30 years old now. He's an adult. He's a full-grown man. What happened to all those other years? We got nothing on it. Luke gives us one account when Jesus was 12. The rest, nada, zilch, zilch, nothing. What did Jesus do? What was teenager Jesus like? What was young 20-year-old Jesus like? Right? We, we just don't ultimately know all of those details. The closest you get in scripture is this brief description at the very end of John's gospel, John 21 verse 25. Here's what he says. There are many other things that Jesus did. Hear that? There are many other things Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? John says, I suppose the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <laughs> right? So Jesus did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of incredible deeds and miracles. The whole world couldn't contain all that he did in his life and ministry. That's incredible. It's best not to speculate and leave it at that. There are some sects, some uh, groups that try to speculate on these things and try to propose other scriptures. It is best not to speculate and leave it to the mind of Christ. You can ask him when he gets to heaven, Jesus, what did you do when you were 18? <laughs> He'll say, ask the Father. <laughs> best not to speculate. So we have a time warp in those days. Matthew continues, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. There are no details in the Holy Scriptures that are insignificant. Why is John preaching in the wilderness? I propose to you at least two reasons. First, the wilderness. Remember the Exodus narrative? This is absolutely critical. You just got to know the book of Exodus before you get into the Gospels, or as soon as you can, get the Gospels and then go to Genesis and Exodus, right? You got to know the Pentateuch. The more you know the Pentateuch, the more you'll see in the Gospels, all right? So uh, the Exodus narrative, the, the, the wilderness is where God woos his people and weans them from idolatry. It's where he, he gets Egypt out of his people. He got them out of Egypt, but the wilderness is where he gets Egypt out of his people, and it's where he draws them to himself, and creates a covenant with them. That's one reason. The wilderness is associated with God's gathering of his people to himself, as in the Exodus. The second reason, it's where the prophet Elijah was directed to go by God during the reign of Ahab and the three-and-a-half-year drought. It's where Elijah the prophet sought refuge as he hid from the evil king Ahab. And so, when Elijah turns or returns from the wilderness, he has a message for Ahab and idolatrous Israel. And you have that famous passage of, of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, you remember? He calls fire from heaven and he calls the people to repent and return from their idolatry. So no wonder then, when John comes crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, he's dressed like who? Elijah. He's dressed like Elijah the prophet, and this catches the attention of the people in no small measure. And his message is both piercing and profound. It's piercing because he says, repent, repent, repent. I'm going to let you guess what the application is today. Repent. 
It's piercing because he's calling the people of Israel, God's covenant people, the people of God, to repent, to return to God, to turn from their sins. It's piercing, but it's also profound. It's profound because he's calling Israel to repent and be baptized. Now, wait a minute. If you're a Jew, you don't, you don't do the baptism thing like that. You've got ritual cleansing, yes. You've got ritual purification, yes. But, but baptism for repentance of sins, to be in right standing with God, no, 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 no. That's what Gentiles do. Jews don't do that. If a Gentile wanted to convert from paganism to Judaism, they would be baptized. But Israel, no, no, no. We have Abraham's our father, Isaac, Jacob, we are the people of God. We don't need to repent. You need to repent so you can become one of us. But John the Baptist comes and says, you repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. This caught the attention of the religious leaders as well. Matthew then goes on to quote Isaiah 40 verse 3. He says, this is fulfilled in the ministry of John. He says, this is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Oh, and if we had time. Hmm. Isaiah 40's context is incredible. We'd look at it all, but key to this context is we see the comfort of the promises, the good news that Isaiah promises. He says, there's good news, comfort, comfort my people. Intrinsically tied to the promises of Isaiah are the establishment of the messianic kingdom, the presence of God with his people. According to Isaiah, there's no good news without a kingdom, without the coming king. And so he says, and he cries, prepare the way of the Lord. And how do you prepare? By repenting. Repent, John the Baptist says, the kingdom of God is at hand. How do you prepare for this coming king, for the true Caesar, the true emperor? You repent. You turn from every other allegiance and wholeheartedly remain devoted to Christ, to the Messiah. That's how you prepare. John's message is one of repentance, but it's also noticeable and notable because why do you repent? It's the reason given. What does he say? Repent for, what is it? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that's a notable phrase. You see that? The kingdom of heaven only Matthew of all the gospel writers uses that phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Mark, Luke, John, they all prefer to say kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's how they say it. But they, Matthew uses this phrase interchangeably. You could say kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. You could see this in Matthew 19, 23, and 24, for instance, which we won't look at now, but you'll see him use them both. Or you could look at parallel accounts, Matthew 11, 11, and Luke 7, 28, to see Matthew calls it kingdom of heaven. Luke uses the phrase kingdom of God. They are interchangeable. Now, why am I telling you this? Because dispensational teaching tries to separate these two titles, these two entities. They try to keep the kingdom of God as one thing, and the kingdom of heaven as another thing. The reason they do this is to maintain distinction between the Israel and the church, to say there is no blend, they are totally separate, and they have two separate kingdoms. This helps that system to keep intact the truth, that, or what they would say is the truth, that there is a future thousand-year literal reign of Christ still to come in the book of Revelation, so they have to keep them separate. It does not hold up under exegesis. As we saw when we were walking through Revelation, that is a very, it ultimately, as you look at the passages, it does not, the distinction is not able to be maintained biblically. Those who have ears, ears to hear, let them hear. So I understand some of you are like, I don't even know what you're talking about right now. That's okay. Just omit that part of the sermon for now. Those who know exactly what I'm talking about, you have ears to hear, let them hear. Check out those references. Matthew has a very different reason for using kingdom of heaven, and it's actually quite important and incredible. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Why? Because he's making an allusion to the book of Daniel. We just went through the book of Daniel. Do you remember it? Daniel chapter 2 was incredible. You remember Nebuchadnezzar says, I need somebody to tell me my dream and the interpretation or all the wise men die. That's quite the task. How do you know somebody else's dream? 
They said, tell us the dream, and then we'll tell you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar's, nope, tell me both, or you will die. Nobody could do it. This is paraphrased, the new Randy, new Pastor Randy version, all right? Uh, Daniel chapter 2, check it out. Uh, Daniel is, gets a revelation from God in chapter 2, and he goes and he tells Nebuchadnezzar both the dream and the meaning. And if you remember, there was a, what was his dream? It was an image of a man. It was an image of a man. And there was a head of gold, chest and arms of silver, a torso and thighs of bronze. The legs were made of iron, and the feet of this dream, this man in the dream, is iron mixed with clay. And then Daniel gives him the interpretation. Central to the interpretation of Daniel is the temporal nature of the kingdoms of man. They will all crumble and pass away. That was central to the interpretation. Do you remember the contrast? But that wasn't all of the dream, was it? A stone came, struck the feet of the image, and then the stone grew into a giant mountain that filled the whole earth. And Daniel gives the interpretation. Check this out. Daniel chapter 2, verse 43 and 44. Daniel 2, 43 and 44. Matthew, this is why Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. You're going to see it right here. Starting in verse 43. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And here it is, verse 44. Check it out. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. There it is. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Thus, Matthew's kingdom of heaven. That's what he's trying to impress on us. Matthew's trying to show us that stone is here. And it's growing as Jesus comes, and he will establish a kingdom that will never end. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. What does Jesus say before the Great Commission? All what? Authority in heaven and on earth. All exousia, authority, kingly power has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's what Matthew's doing with kingdom of heaven. He's drawing the reader's mind back to the book of Daniel incredible incredible and this kingdom this kingdom john the baptist says is at hand therefore repent repent return to god that's his message number two we'll check out his wardrobe oh man we love john's wardrobe he looks like he's like straight out of paia no offense to people maybe here who live in Paia, but you know it's true, right? He, he comes wearing camel's hair, a, a, a leather belt around his waist. He's eating locusts and wild honey. Now, that may seem weird to you. Has anybody here ever eaten a locust? Anybody? Paula and me, we're the only two, okay? You can add crickets to mine and mealworms as well, all right? Uh, we've eaten all these things. But, but locust is actually not a strange food in different cultures to eat. It's actually quite common, especially when your land is swarming with them. Eventually, you look at them and say, can I eat these things? Right? <laughs> not bad, not bad. He comes looking like he's straight out of the wilderness, Bear grills, man versus wild, and... He looks like a wild man, but again, this is the clothing of Elijah the prophet. That's what's significant about this. This is, everybody would have recognized, that's like Elijah the prophet. Now, why is that important? Because the book of Malachi, the last Old Testament book in your Bible, not in a Hebrew Bible, but the last Old Testament book in your Bible is the book of Malachi, and it closes with a promise. God said before the day of the Lord came, he would send Elijah the prophet. Before that day came, he would send Elijah the prophet. And now you've got John the Baptist here, dressed like Elijah, coming in the wilderness, saying, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Was John the Baptist Elijah? We'll get there when we get to that section in Matthew. That's not today. But this is why it would have caught their attention and caused quite the stir and then John goes into dialogue, which we won't have time to cover all of it because I want to get to the baptism. Uh, he begins to announce the ministry of Jesus as he's dealing with these Pharisees and Sadducees. I'm going to read that briefly. Verse 7. 
When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John's not one to mince words. I, maybe he didn't read Speaking the Truth and Love by David Pallison. I'm not sure, but, uh, but he, I don't know that he would endorse this type of preaching. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the, lax, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. Here's what he says about Jesus. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear whose threshing, threshing floor? His threshing floor. And gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Whew. John and Pharisees and Sadducees, go at it. First introduction, day one. How many seconds do you have to make a first impression? John's first impression, you brood of vipers. Who told you to flee? Incredible. John's title for them, you know what a brood of vipers is, don't you? They're children of serpents. They're children of vipers. A brood of vipers is two vipers come together and they have baby vipers. That's their brood of vipers. What's he calling them? Offspring of serpents. Genesis chapter 3, a serpent came. Jesus would use this exact same title of them. And then Jesus, also not one to mince words in the book of John, would say, you are of your father the devil. It's worth mentioning the Pharisees and Sadducees were the religious leaders at the time. They were highly respected they were good people. You would love them. You would probably ask them biblical questions. Hey, uh, you know, Pharisee, whatever, I have this question about this. Can you, can you tell me how, how do you interpret this? You'd ask their scribes. You'd ask their leaders, their trainees. They were highly respected teachers of the law. This would have stunned not only them, everybody who heard them, who heard John say this. This is quite shocking. John's dialogue is beginning to reshape their hope. Not only the hope of the people, but also the hope of the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the Sadducees. If you ever hear a preacher call sinners to repent hard, say, you will suffer hell if you don't turn. If you ever hear that, you might think, ooh, that's, that's too hard. But I want you to hear, beloved, one of these Pharisees would come to Jesus in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. One of the, this word would cut some of them, and they would repent. Some of them would flee from the wrath to come. Beloved, preach the gospel. If you have to with your family and friends, there is a time to look them in the face and say, you are in danger of the fires of hell. You are deceived by your sin. You need to repent. Your way is foolish and dishonoring to God. That can be very loving to people. And in, you might think it's going to draw and push them away. But it may have very, the very opposite effect of opening their eyes to the folly of their sin. I say that. Obviously, you should always speak the truth in love. Obviously, you should always speak as to the occasion fits by the Holy Spirit. But I think some of us just refuse to speak at all or call sin, sin. And so I want to encourage you with this message. John's message, he starts to reshape their hope. He starts to reshape their identity. What's happening here is they, they laid claim to their lineage. We are sons of Abraham. And John says, it's not that you're wrong. It's, it's that you just need more. You need to repent. And so Jesus, the kingdom of Jesus, would be a people who don't owe their, their lineage to genetics, but to repentance. The citizens of the kingdom will be known not by ultimately who their physical father is, but who their spiritual father is and their works 
of repentance. That's the kingdom of heaven. He's reshaping their identity. The question isn't, where did you come from, but are you repenting? And so he exhorts them to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, real quick, we got to go backwards in time just a little bit. Chapter 2, verse 23. I said that in the beginning of the sermon, right? That's really important to understanding this interchange, but also the interchange with Jesus at his baptism. Okay? Chapter 2, 23 frames this chapter. Remember, it says that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. He'd be from Nazareth. Now, that passage confuses a lot of people because a lot of people look and you say, oh, okay, I can see where Hosea quotes this and Isaiah 40, verse 3, and then you get to Nazareth if you've ever looked in your Bibles and you're like, this, so that it would be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. And you're like, where's that in the Bible? Anybody ever thought that? You're like, where, I can't find where it says he'll be called a Nazarene. I can see Bethlehem. I can see all these other things, but I can't find any scripture that says where Jesus would be called a Nazarene. This is important. Again, this frames this whole interchange. We miss a few things about this. Uh, first, Matthew cues us in here with the phrase, by the prophets. It would be filled what was spoken by the prophets. Do you hear that? plural. I told you no word is accidental in the scriptures. They're all inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Every other fulfillment quotation in Matthew, it says prophet, so that what would be fulfilled is spoken by the prophet. Here it says spoken by the prophets, plural. What Matthew's doing is he's bringing together a body of knowledge concerning prophetic understanding of the Messiah, He's bringing together a body of commonly held knowledge. We might say something like this. Everybody knows, there's your plural, everybody knows that when Uncle Wes preaches, we're going to hear a story about Oonga Moonga, right? See, you all know, right? That we might say something like that. Everybody knows you can't just eat one four sisters butter roll. You've got to have two. That's what Matthew's doing. As spoken of by the prophets, this commonly held prophetic understanding. What is that prophetic understanding? Here it is, that the Messiah would be the branch of David, Isaiah 11.1. 1. That the Messiah would be the root of Jesse or the branch of David. Check out Isaiah 11. Uh, verse 1 and 2. If you can put that up on the screen for me. Isaiah 11, verse 1 and 2. Check out what it says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall bear his fruit. Now, did you see that? There's two things happening. So keep this up. Don't go to Matthew. Remember, remember Matthew 3, though. Bear fruit, there it is, in keeping with repentance. Every branch, he goes on to say, that does not bear fruit will be cut off and thrown into the fire. Very next passage, the baptism of Jesus, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now check this out, Isaiah 11.1. 1, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, there it is, highlight that word in your mind or in your Bibles, a branch from his roots shall what? Bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And then you have this famous sevenfold Spirit of God passage. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and might, of knowledge and fear of the Lord. We could add verse 5 in there as well. But we'll get there in a minute. Do you hear? I hope this is ringing a bell already with you. You have fruit bearing and spirit abiding in Isaiah 11 all together, and then we have fruit-bearing with John the Baptist and abiding, spirit abiding, in chapter 3 with the baptism of Jesus. I hope this is starting to ring a bell. What is Matthew doing now? Okay, bring it all together. The Hebrew word for branch, neser, that's the Hebrew word underneath branch, the branch from his root shall bear fruit. The Hebrew word neser sounds a whole, he's making a play on words, sounds a whole like, a lot like Nazareth, neser. So what may be fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophets, that Jesus would be called the branch, a Nasser, right? He's making a play on words. 
frames the whole passage. And now we come back to Matthew chapter 3. John the Baptist tells these Pharisees and Sadducees that every branch that doesn't bear fruit is going to be cut off, thrown into the fire. This is, so now we have, in contrast to these fruitless, we could say, spiritless branches, comes the true fruit-bearing branch on whom the Spirit of God descends and remains, Jesus of Nazareth. The true branch. Whew. We're just, we haven't even got to the baptism of Jesus yet. <laughs> Incredible. God's word is amazing. And so now we have to ask, what does it mean to bear fruit in keeping with repentance? You hear that? It's not just, he doesn't just say repent. He then says bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Here's what it means. It means a denunciation and a renouncing of idols. So we got that. Accompanied by deeds and a display that verify true repentance has occurred. Now, why do I say accompanied by deeds that display and verify? Why do I say that? John the Baptist knows that the Pharisees and Sadducees were all too happy to look pious. They were all too happy to have a veneer of religion about them, yet hold on to their idols underneath. So he tells them, it's not enough for you to say you're repentant or even to just look repentant, but to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Hear me, KBC, where you have someone who is unwilling to leave their sin and disobedience, you do not have true repentance. Where you have a person, no matter what they say, no matter how long they've been a church member, no matter uh, what, what camp theologically they would ascribe to, Reformed, Arminian, Presbyterian, Baptist, Lutheran, Wesleyan, non-denominational, doesn't matter. Where you have somebody who is unwilling to forsake their sin, you do not have true repentance. And if that is you, and you are holding on to your sin, you are not repentant. Don't fool yourself, and none should think that false repentance or a veneer of religiosity will deliver them from the wrath to come. Hear John's words, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee. His picture would call to mind in that time a pile of chaff that they were about to burn up. And underneath this pile of chaff, snakes would make their homes, their dens. And as they set it on fire, snakes would slither away trying to get out of the heat. But many times they wouldn't escape it. They would burn and slither away while they're burning that's what John says. It's a very vivid picture who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. And so that it's true for us as well. It'll be like this for all who fail to truly repent from their sins. And so I urge you, as John the Baptist urged them, repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What does that look like? I'm just going to give you a few things briefly, just a few things briefly. If I don't hit your category of sin, then ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten my category of sin. If you're struggling with lust this morning, it could take any number of forms. Turn from all access. Take radical measures to prevent your return. That would be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're a liar, then you become a radical truth teller and you walk in the light. If you steal, then you return what you have stolen, even if it's taxes. Ouch. And you work hard with your own hands. If you're lazy, a sluggard, sloth, then you commit to waking up and to productivity and sleep the sleep of a hard-working man. Put yourself in a place where you cannot sleep. 
If you're a drunkard or substance abuser, leave your liquor and your practice and instead replace it with sober-mindedness in all things. Seek God as your refuge and strength. If you struggle with anxiety, being fearful, relinquish your ability to control vain efforts are your abilities to control the outcomes. Look to the sovereignty of God and follow him in acts of courageous living. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. If you're enslaved to technology, forsake it, cut it off, get a dumb phone, go analog, engage with people face to face. If you love money, give to the poor. Renounce all that you have as being your own and steward it for the glory of God. I hope you're getting at what I'm saying. It's not enough to say I'm sorry for my sin. I must take radical actions to forsake it, to bear fruit and keeping with repentance. If you have a besetting sin, something that you've apologized for repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, and you can't seem to get victory over it, one of the things I often ask and probe is, are you taking radical measures against it? Are you willing to totally flee it? Because what I find most people do is they leave a, an escape hatch back to it, a, a last-ditch effort, if you will. I'll do this, 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 and this, but I'm just going to leave this, this little area right here, and we do it knowingly. Repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But it's not enough to just say stop it, is it? Stop sinning. That's never enough. It doesn't work. You've tried that. It's not enough to say stop it. The best way, here's the best way to wean yourself from idols. You want to know how? Here's the best way. It's not a secret. It's a fight. Abide in Christ. Abide in Christ. Daily, fight for joy with him. Abide in him who is the true branch, who says, I am the vine. You are the branches apart from me. You can do nothing. Abide in him, and you will feel his power bound in you. Abide in Christ, and let me add this. And I'm not really adding, I'm just explaining. Abide with his people daily. This is something I want us to grow in, KBC, this coming year, five years. The book of Acts says that they were daily with one another and the apostles' teaching and the breaking of bread and fellowship and prayer. Beloved, that was a practice of theirs because that was one way they were warring against sin. To the degree that you're with other believers daily, and in fellowship, not just with them, but in fellowship with them, practicing the community of the body of Christ, sharpening one another with word and prayer, not just shooting the breeze, but to the degree that you're with one another, strengthening each other, doing life together, you will find your defenses against sin fortified. You will find your taste and thirst for unrighteousness squelched as you are with those who are together pursuing the holiness of God. Do it daily. One of the worst things you can do in your sin is to be alone with it. You are not strong enough. If you're single, hear me, single people, the best thing you can do is to live with another godly believer or couple or whoever. If you're a godly couple or a godly believer, consider living with another believer. You say, I'm that'll make me uncomfortable. I like my space. Amen. Yes. Hallelujah. That's me too, right? But you need to die to yourself. And you need the fellowship of the saints. I encourage you, don't be alone with your sin. Strive to be with others. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We move on to the next section. We see the affirmation of Jesus' ministry. I will move through this quickly. I wish I had more time. We can come back to it at another time. We see the baptism of Jesus. Oh, this caused John great consternation. He was, he was deeply troubled by this. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus need to be baptized? He didn't sin. 
He, this was a baptism for, the, for, the remission, for confession of sin. He didn't sin. He doesn't need to be baptized. Why did Jesus get baptized? You ever think that? John had a problem with that too. Jesus comes to him and John says, no, 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 no. I, I, I need to be baptized by you, actually. And Jesus answered, John, trust me. Let it be, man. Just do it. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The baptism of Jesus does at least five things. So I'm just going to give you these in rapid fire. Does five things. It displays five things in Matthew's gospel. Number one, it verifies the words of John. It affirms the words of John the Baptist about Jesus. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what it affirms. John said, he who's coming after me is mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This affirms Jesus can do that because Jesus has the Holy Spirit on him. He is the source of the Holy Spirit. So if you want to be a spiritual person, go to Jesus. He's the one you get the Spirit from. He's the true spiritual person. It says, it affirms the words about Jesus. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire because he possesses that. Now, what does it mean to be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire? Uh, forgive me for not giving a full exposition of this this morning. I'm just going to give you the cliff note version. Here's what it means. This is another way of saying that Jesus alone has the power to save and to judge. That's what it means. It's another way of saying Jesus alone has the power to save and to judge. I'll give you a reference for your own homework. John 5, 22 through 27. That's how John the Apostle frames this discussion. Jesus alone has the power to save and to judge. That's the first thing it does. It verifies the testimony of John about Jesus. Number two, it shows that Jesus is willing to identify with his people in order to fulfill righteousness. That Jesus is willing to identify with his people in order to fulfill righteousness. Let me give you a, a little brief aside here. John the Baptist was a duly recognized true prophet of God. Now remember I said there's no, there's no Old Testament law that would require a Jew to be baptized. So how do we fulfill all righteousness? Because there's no law in the Old Testament that commands his people to be baptized. John, being a duly appointed recognized prophet of God, means that whatever he says, he speaks with the full authority of God behind it. Now that is legislation. That's command. If you want to be obedient to God, you hear his prophet. In the same way, if my children are outside, I often do this, or maybe squabbling, I might tell one of my other children, you know, Titus, go tell Scarlet, Daddy said stop. Now when Titus walks over and tells Scarlet, Daddy said stop, whose voice is she hearing? Dad's. It now bears full authority of parental power. John is a prophet. When he commands repent and be baptized, it carries full weight of legislation behind it. To be a faithful Jew then is to hear the prophet of God. Jesus is fulfilling all righteousness and identifying with his people. Number three, or rather, let me go back one more time there. Jesus, this shows us that Jesus was wholly committed to living a life to where everybody around him would have no doubt that he was faithful to God. Think about your life. Let that be your aim. That you would be so radically committed to living for Jesus that there is no credible doubt that can be lodged around you that you are committed to God. That's what Jesus is doing here. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Number three, this is a foreshadowing of the vicarious work of Christ, not only to identify with sinners, but to die in their place. It's a foreshadowing of his atoning substitutionary work on the cross. Number four, number four, the baptism of Jesus publicly displays his anointing, that's what Messiah means, anointed one, publicly displays his anointing and thus announces his messianic reign. The kingdom of God is at hand. Number five. Number five. 
The baptism of Jesus further advances Matthew's fulfillment theme. It advances his fulfillment theme. What do I mean by that? Matthew has been weaving the life of Jesus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the Exodus narrative, the story of Exodus, showing that Jesus is not just God's true son, but he is the obedient son, unlike the nation of Israel. He is the son that brings the father pleasure. We saw in chapter 2, he called him out of Egypt, just like Israel, the nation, was called out of Egypt. Out of Egypt, where did they go? Do you remember? Pharaoh's chasing them, and they go through the Red Sea on dry ground. Paul the Apostle explicitly likens their crossing through the Red Sea to baptism. He links it and says it is like a baptism. And now, Jesus, out of Egypt, I called my son in chapter 2. Now he is entering the waters of baptism. And where did Israel go after they were baptized? Into the wilderness for how long? Forty years. And now Jesus, in chapter 4, goes into the wilderness for how long? Forty days. There's no accident. Now this son's obedience will be tested. Will be tested. And what will be the outcome and what are the implications? We know the outcome, but what are the implications of the temptation of Christ? And to that, we turn next week. Ultimately, putting it all together... We see the confirmation of chapter 3 that Jesus is the true Nazarene. In fulfillment of the prophets as stated in chapter 2, the branch of Isaiah 11, the one on whom the Spirit truly remains. And may you today, Kahalui Baptist Church and friends, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Come ye sinners, poor and needy. Weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Let's pray. Father, the work of genuine repentance is a work only done by your Spirit. Father, would you break the chains of idolatry this morning? Would you convict of sin and unrighteousness? Father, may we feel our weakness and our neediness and look to Jesus ready, ready, standing to save. And so, Father, would you bless our souls this morning, we pray, as we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.